since we've already prayed, I want to begin us off this morning with a question. So here's the question we're starting off with today. What should come to mind when people hear the term Christian? What should come to mind when people hear the term Christian? Now, by the way, you've heard me go on about this. I will spare you the diatribe. But typically, I avoid the word Christian only because it's a weird connotation. It's actually used only three times in the New Testament, and two of those times are somewhat derogatory, which is really interesting. You wouldn't have guessed that. But usually I like to refer to followers of the way, followers of Jesus, Jesus' people. However, for today's purposes, we're going to use the word Christian because it's a good shorthand, and it goes to our point, what should come to mind when people hear the term Christian? Now I want to change it up just slightly. What does come to mind when people hear the term Christian? What should come to mind and what does come to mind? Now, last week we talked about a term that never comes to mind when we hear the term Christian. And that word or that term is fearless. Fearless. It rarely comes to mind when we hear the word Christian. And yet, when we look back at our roots, we, we saw that Jesus was fearless. Fearlessness, in fact, was one of the most prominent things about Jesus. So from that, we learned that because Jesus was fearless, if we as his people, if we as Christians look like Jesus, then we can be fearless too. Many of the first century Christians understood that, and for that reason, they were fearless. They didn't fear death. And they didn't fear illness. And they didn't fear loss. And we needn't fear loss either. And when we don't fear losing something, we will also become selfless. And when we don't fear losing something, we'll also become generous. And we'll also become compassionate. And all of those things will make us more like Jesus as well. So, so at a minimum... It should be said of Christians that, like Jesus, we're fearless. And in our fearlessness, we don't fear loss. And we're selfless. And we're generous. And we're compassionate. So put all of that together. And it means that the followers of Jesus ought to be known as the most fearless, confident people in the entire world. Now, by the way, when I say confident, I'm not talking about arrogant confidence, but I'm talking about Confidence as in humble certainty about the things that really matter. So it's, it's the good kind of confidence. It's this humble assurance, if you will. And if we're doing it right, it should be that the lost in the world, the people who don't know Jesus in the world, will find that there's something so positive and so irresistible about Christians that when we show up anywhere, everyone will say, oh, whew, good, the Christians are here. That's the way it should go. However, many people, including many believers, think that looking like Jesus isn't a good thing. Many people have been led to believe from their parents or maybe their grandparents or maybe they're Sunday school teachers, or, or maybe from television or other media. They've been taught to believe that Jesus was pretty much a wimp. 
and, and a weakling. That Jesus was just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That Jesus was nothing more than a soft, long-haired, California surfer guy. You've seen the picture. I saw the picture yesterday. I was in somebody's house, and I said, oh, there he is, surfer Jesus. But Jesus was anything but that. And from what we saw last week, Jesus was not weak and fragile. And as a result, Christianity is not weak and fragile. And as Jesus' followers, we should not be weak and fragile either. So all of this leads us to the question, well then, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this place? I mean, Christianity survived the persecution of Rome. Christianity survived the temple for a reason. And the reason was because there was something undeniably attractive about Christians. The Christians were like Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And the people who were nothing like Jesus liked him back. And in the first century, there was something about the community of fearless, confident Christians that was almost irresistible. So what happened? Why don't people think irresistible when they hear the word Christian? Why don't they cheer? Yay! It must be that somewhere along the way, we lost our reputation as the fearless and confident ones. What could have happened? Well, maybe, maybe it had something to do with the sheer panic people hearing the voices coming out of the Christian community regarding the topics of politics or the economy or the social issues in our world. Now, I often wonder what Jesus must think when he hears us complaining about these things. Like, if I could imagine what Jesus is thinking when he hears these things, is he, is he thinking, you live in the United States of America and you're freaking out? over who the president is, or who the president might be. Or you're, you're losing your mind because there's this temporary downward trend in your cyclical national economy? Have you forgotten who you follow? Have you forgotten, Jesus must think, I walked into Jerusalem, and I rode on a donkey down Main Street knowing I was going to be arrested and beaten on your behalf. Tell me again what you're worried about. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And if that's not embarrassing enough, wait until we go through our scripture for today. Because today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. We'll be in chapters 11 and 12. And in these passages, the author of Hebrews, and that's one of those things you'll always hear us say, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We really have no idea. That's on my list of questions for when I get to heaven after I call my dog Chloe, I'm going to say, by the way, you know Chloe's a Christian, right? Or she was, right? Okay. Actually, one of my professors was asked the question, do dogs go to heaven? And he said, listen, I don't know, but when you get there, whistle and see if anybody comes. So. But the author was writing primarily to Jewish Christians. That's why they call it Hebrews. And they were beginning to wonder this. Is it worth it? And is it working? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when there's so much at stake? And is it worth it to follow Jesus when it's really tough to do? They want to know, is, all, is, is following Jesus actually making a difference in the world? 
Is following Jesus working and is following Jesus worth it? Because you see, here's the thing we can't really comprehend. When Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago, nobody knew what was going to happen with this group of people who believed that somebody rose from the dead. See, for them, there was no guarantee. There was no guarantee that there would ever be a result of their faith. They could not have imagined visiting a country like ours and seeing churches for Jesus all over the place, all over the country. They couldn't have imagined a country like ours, whether they actually realize it a lot, where a majority of the people live under the moral standards of the Judeo-Christian worldview. A lot of people call that common sense now, but it isn't really common sense. It's a Judeo-Christian worldview, just sometimes God has been removed from the picture. 2,000 years ago, they couldn't have imagined this at all. When they heard the words of the writer of Hebrews, it was only about 50 years after the resurrection. And there are people in the room I know that can remember 50 years back. I mean, you remember that stuff in your lifetime. And at that time, there were no church buildings. There were no Christian organizations or Christian publications. There were no Christian videos or TikToks or Insta stories, or blogs, or podcasts, or movies, or television programs, none of that. Kirk Cameron was not doing bad Christian movies back then. Bless his heart. For them, all there were was simply a gathering of people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Savior that literally rose from the dead. And they believed it because they'd either met somebody who saw the resurrected Savior, or they'd met someone who'd met someone who'd seen or talked to the resurrected Savior. They had no idea. So they wondered, is this movement going to go anywhere? Are we wasting our time? Are we risking our lives for nothing? Is it, is it worth it? And so the author of Hebrews wrote to this first century audience and told them, it is really worth it. Just you wait and see. So here's how the author began. If you have a Bible, welcome to open it up. Hebrews chapter 11. Any version you like, I'll be using New International Version, but you'll get it no matter which one you're reading. If you're reading the message, you'll have to be more creative, but you'll still get it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now we've made a lot of spiritual hay about this particular definition, but really it's just a definition of faith. It's the definition of faith in general. It's the definition of biblical faith. And, and here's a good illustration to help you understand what it really means. Look at it like this. When you took your job, you were told, congratulations, you got the job. You're going to do whatever it is your job is, and here's how much money we're going to pay you. And then every two weeks or every week or every month, whatever it is, you're going to get a check. So you went to work confident that you were going to get the check you were hoping for and assured that they were going to pay you. That's faith. That is all that faith is. You act based upon something you're pretty darn sure you know is going to happen. It's confidence that someone is going to keep their promise. Everyone who's ever had a job has experienced this. You've all experienced faith. All right, continuing on, verse 2. That is what the ancients were commended for. So, from there, the author goes back to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we call it, 
And he begins to talk about the famous individuals, the stories of the famous individuals from the Old Testament. The people that had heard growing up about Moses and about Moses' parents and about Abraham and about Isaac. The whole list of them. And the, the author wrote that they were all commendable. Not because they thought of something and then somehow convinced God to do what they'd thought of. God, I think we should put this over here. Let's all think about it together. Boom, it's there. That's not what they did. That's called magic. But rather because God made them a promise and they lived their lives as if God was going to keep that promise. So faith is simply confidence that God is going to do what God has promised to do. And walking by faith or living by faith is simply living every single day of your life as if God can be trusted and God is going to keep his promise. So from there, the author begins a powerful message. He starts with Abel. Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Starts with Abel. And then the author provides a list, a litany of people who lived by their faith in God. People who lived every single day lived their lives as if God was going to keep his promise. But, and this is important, there were also people who died without ever receiving the paycheck. There were people who died without ever seeing God's promise fulfilled. We move on to verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They were still living on faith. They hadn't seen a result. They didn't know it worked, but they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw the things and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They had not received all the things that God had promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from far away. They were off in the distance. Because this is referring to what God said to Abraham back in the Hebrew Bible, back in Genesis 12. Remember that? God took Abraham, plucked him out of that place in Iraq called Ur of the Chaldeans. And he said, made a promise to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Which we kind of look at today and go, all right, maybe he had a big following, maybe he had a TV contract, a little Netflix deal, he was on podcasts, all this stuff. But then he's a nobody guy in the middle of a nobody place belonging to a nobody people, and they said the whole world's going to be blessed through you. Boy, that's pretty confident. And Abraham never saw that fulfilled. Nor did his son Isaac, nor did Jacob, nor did the nation of Israel, nor did Moses. Generation after generation after generation came and went without seeing God's promise fulfilled. And yet, generation after generation after generation, there was always a remnant. There was always a group of people who remained faithful to God because they believed with all their heart that God was going to come through. Now compare that to how it works in our day. We pray on Monday. And if God hasn't shown up by Friday, we've already started to wonder whether there is a God or not. We gave him a few days. I mean, five, five days is more than enough time, isn't it? Sometimes we'll even give him another week. All right, I'm going to be really faithful, God. I'm going to pray for two weeks. Then I'll give up. And if God doesn't come through for them, or if somebody gets sick, or the relationship still isn't getting better, or our kids are still out of control, or we haven't gotten the job we want, or the raise we want, or the bonus we want, and we think to ourselves, huh, how can I believe in a God who is so untrustworthy? And to those people, 
to those faithful people, to those unfaithful people, the faithful people in Hebrews 11 would go, what? We've lived our entire lives trusting God, and we've never seen him come through on his promise, but we keep trusting anyway. And then the author takes it to the next level. He reports in Hebrews 11.36, some of them faced jeers and flogging. We talked about flogging last week. We went into great detail about just what a brutal and disgusting practice it is. But even though we talked about it, we're still inclined to read the word flogging and go, move right on to the next word. 36 continues, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. He continues on. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. I mean, they had nothing. They had less than nothing. Everything had been taken from them. Everybody persecuted them. Everyone mistreated them. And then the author paused. And he considered all of the faithful believers that came and went from God's first people all the way up to that first century. And the person who was writing this, the book of Hebrews, was writing from the other side of the crucifixion. He had seen Jesus come back from the dead. And he must have been thinking, what if all those people before hadn't been so faithful? What if they'd given up on God's promises? And then the author writes something incredibly powerful. He says this in verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. The world was not worthy of them. So when the writer writes this, do you think the writer's thinking about his own lack of faith? Do you think the writer is considering his own complaints? Was he remembering all of the times that he was thinking about abandoning God because God didn't answer his prayers by the end of the week? And then he thinks of those people. The world was not worthy of those people, those faithful people. There was once a version of faithfulness to God that elicited that kind of heroic living. The kind of heroic living that caused others to go, wow that caused others to take note, that caused others to see what those people were doing and ask, who are these people? There was once a type of faithfulness to God that caused other people to stop what they were doing and stare. That caused other people to be so impressed that they couldn't stop looking, they couldn't stop noticing. And even though there were certain things that the people they're watching, that they just couldn't buy into, and, and there were certain things that they really didn't understand. They just knew something. They knew they were looking at something special, something otherworldly. They were looking at the most inspirational people they'd ever met. How is it that you Christians just hold that faith? Well, over time, that movement grew, and it spread, and it spread across cultures, and across ethnicities, and across national boundaries, and it spread to the rich and to the poor. It spread to the masters and the slaves, to the men and the women and the children. It spread to the highly educated and to the worldly educated. It spread to Jews and it spread to Gentiles, and it kept on growing, and it kept on growing, and it's the reason that it's the largest faith in the world today, and it's the reason that we're here. 
See, there was once upon a time a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. It inspired people to go, oh, that's awe-inspiring. Who are these people? Who were these people? Well, the author continues. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The faithfulness of all those believers led up to the time of the writer of Hebrews, 2,000 plus years. And then he gets to us. Verse 40. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And it's here we see it. It's here we see the answer. Here we see the reason that God didn't fulfill the promise in their time was because God had something much, much better ahead for the whole world. And here we are, sitting in Boca Raton, 6,500 miles away from Jerusalem, 2,000 years past when it all took place, when this writing took place. And all of those things happened. And today, we're celebrating a Galilean builder, a Jewish craftsman from the middle of nowhere. Those people couldn't possibly comprehend that God was up to something so big and so amazing and so far-reaching they couldn't even picture it in their heads as hard as they tried, but they remained faithful anyway. And it was only among us and through us that they would be made perfect. What does perfect mean? Everything all has different contexts. In this context, perfect means that God's plan would be completed. It was only in now that you could see how God's plan was completed. This is one of the things that makes our faith worthy of believing, that makes our faith belief worthy. It's the one thing that makes our faith belief worthy for me. All of those Old Testament witnesses remained faithful and remained forward-looking, even though they didn't see God fulfill one promise. They didn't see one plan of God's come to fruition. And then there's us. We have the blessing. We have the luxury of being able to look back on all that God has done, on how God has faithfully come through on all his promises. And yet we remain so fearful. Looking back, we can see it all. God made a promise to Abraham. God filled that promise he made to Abraham through Jesus. And then the church was launched, the community of believers in Jesus, the community of God. And it has survived, and it has thrived for the past 2,000 years. There's so much evidence. There's so much reason for us to lean on our faith. In fact, we have absolutely no reason to be fearful. We should be, the followers of Jesus should be the most fearless, confident, humble people in the world, period. Amen. Amen. You need to keep coming back, sir. <laughs> and not because of what God has promised. It's not a promise. It's been done because of what God has done. We are living on the other side of the promise. So then, having laid out all of that, the writer of Hebrews says to his first century audience, now we go to Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, okay, so we said all of that, that's what the therefore is there for, right? Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, in light of all that God has already done, in light of the fact that God has kept his promise, and all of those people remained faithful, in light of that fact, while they were waiting for God, they remained faithful. It's even more compelling when we get to see not only those people in the Old Testament, we've seen 2,000 years of Christian witness take place before us. We've seen how, how they remained faithful and those people who came after that and they spread the movement throughout the ancient world. And then we saw this movement absolutely just take over Europe and in the 15th and 16th centuries, we saw the movement falling into the hands of the common person. The New Testament was translated into the vernacular language, the common language, English as we talked about last week, but also all the European languages into French, into Italian, into German, into Portuguese. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what is it that we should do? What should we do? Knowing all of this, we're surrounded by all these witnesses. What is it that we as Christians should do? We should withdraw from society. We should huddle up and complain and whine to each other about how bad the world is. We should start to hoard our resources. We should build bunkers. We should buy weapons and stockpile ammo. And we should lash out on social media as often as possible. We should be angry and snarky all the time. We should scream to whomever will listen that we all need to do something. Ah! We should blame the police. We should blame the president. We should blame all the politicians. We should blame the baby boomers. We should blame the millennials. We should blame the Gen Z. We should demand our rights, right? We should build a wall. We should tax the millionaires and billionaires. We should sue somebody. We should take back our country. We should demand equity. We should pray that Jesus returns soon so we don't have to suffer any of this. Did I leave anybody out? Have I officially offended everybody? We should fear AI, right? Now, can you imagine how all this would sound to that great cloud of witnesses listening to it? What are you people doing? You're worried about who? You're nervous about what? You're stressed out about, huh? How do we sound to the persecuted church in the world today? You know, people being persecuted for the Christian faith in the world today as we stand here in Syria and Iraq and Iran and Africa and China and India, elsewhere, all over the globe. People who continue to believe in Jesus are persecuted and yet they're praying for their family's safety. They're praying for their daughters and sons every single day. I mean, how embarrassing it would be if they listened to our prayers. Think what they're going through and then think about our prayers. Lord, please bless this day. Heal my ankle. I twisted it. It hurts. By the way, I'm not picking on you. These were all prayers I prayed like this week, okay? Help me find my earbuds. I don't know where I put them. I didn't pray this one because I don't have a daughter, but, you know, help my daughter get into the college of her choice. Help her, get into, help her get into her big school that she really wants. Oh, yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Like, seriously? That's our prayer? God must be thinking, do you even know the price I paid so that you would know I would exist? Do you pay any attention to that at all? Can you imagine a first-century leader saying, to, saying any of this to a first-century audience of believers? 
A first century Jesus follower talking to a crowd of believers who are all like kind of low-key wondering, is this real? Is this working? Is this even worth it? God would say, yes, it's real. Yes, it's working. And yes, it's worth it. See, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have any idea. They had no clue. But look at us now. Look at us now. So here's what God says to us. When we're overwhelmed with fear, here's what he says to us. When it looks like our world is slipping into the abyss, when it looks like our faith is no longer in favor, when it looks like we have no more influence, when, when it feels like nobody likes Christians anymore, nobody listens to Christians anymore, when it feels like there's no more Christian generosity anymore, think about all the hospitals you've seen in your life. It's changing now. Mercy Hospital, Grace Hospital, Baptist Hospital, these are all Christian Hospitals made possible by Christian faith and Christian generosity. Christians were once famous for being the most generous people around. Here's what the writer says to us when we're stuck wondering, what happened to the way things used to be? Remember Billy Joel's song about the good old days? Maybe they weren't always good. What happened to the good old days? Here's what the writer says to us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Instead of blaming, instead of criticizing, instead of being all worked up, instead of rage posting or mean tweeting, take a good look at yourself and ask yourself, what's stopping me? Why am I not all in with this? It's here that God wants us to ask ourselves, what am I really afraid of? What am I really worried about? What are the things that I really need to throw off, that I really need to leave behind? What's stopping me from leaning into the uncertainty and going all in and following Jesus in my life today? Through Abraham, God did something for the whole world. And from where we stand, we can see it, and we can see it all clearly whom shall we fear? What shall we fear? And then the writer goes even deeper. He says, let us, let us, let us run with perseverance. Let us run with perseverance. Let us make sure that we don't give up, that we don't give in, that we don't back down, that we don't tap out, or that we don't decide it's just too much work. I can't do this anymore. It's just easier. I don't wake up on Sundays anymore. It's just easier. I'll turn it on online. Glad you guys are here online. It's nice to come in. Let us run with perseverance the race that is left before us. Let us, let we believers in America, right here, right now, let us do what we have to do. Let us, in our current cultural context, not wishing for a context that no longer exists, in our current cultural context, let us do whatever it takes to make a difference in our culture and in our world. That's what we need to do. And so the question I have for you today is, are we up for it? Are we just going to keep on whining and complaining and blaming? Are we going to go about wringing our hands about or losing sleep over or playing the victim regarding all the things we think need to happen but aren't happening? We've decided we know how to fix this world. We just think it needs to happen. Listen to me, God. 
But are we willing to get on board with all those faithful, confident, fearless followers of Jesus who came before us and do what they did and live irresistible lives of faith that bring hope and salvation to everybody around us? And then the writer said, while you're ordering your life better to reflect your faith, here's the thing you need to remember. While you're looking for a way to make a difference, while you're looking for a way to be fearless, for a way to be confident, for a way to show your faith, for a way to show the world around you, remember to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on. Now, by the way, this part of this verse brings us to kind of the root of our problem. Many of us, probably too many of us, have fixed our eyes on all the wrong things to fix our world. Our eyes are fixed on our own safety and security. Our eyes are fixed on the causes of the world's problems according to me or according to you. We think that we've discovered or uncovered how to fix the world. We know everything. Our eyes are fixed on the next piece of legislation that we're just positive will fix the sinful nature of mankind like it's done so many times in the past. As long as our, our, as long as our eyes are fixed there, we're not going to run the race with endurance. Instead, we're going to run scared. And we're going to miss out on our opportunity as well as our responsibility to be a light to our culture. That's what we were called to be. So ask yourself the question, what are your eyes fixed on? What are your eyes fixed on? Are your eyes fixed on safety and security and wealth and the government and all the stuff that culture says you should fix your eyes on? The writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, look, as long as you're doing that, you're never going to fulfill God's purpose for your life. As long as you're fixing your eyes on the demands of culture, he would say, you'll never fulfill your destiny. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus needs to become your point of reference. Jesus needs to become your touchstone, the place you go back to so that every single day with all the anxiety that exists in the world, and it does, and all the fear that exists in the world, and it does, and all the news reports droning on and on about what horror show is going to befall us next. With all of that, you'll always ask yourself the question, but what would Jesus do? Or what would Jesus say? Or how would Jesus respond to all of this? Because remember, your undefeatable, fearless Savior faced down all of the world's power. Your fearless Savior walked into the jaws of death fearlessly. And he said, come with me. He said, follow me. What difference could we make if one day every single person who has committed his or her life to Jesus would say, just for 24 hours... I'm going to do what Jesus would do. I'm going to say what Jesus would say. I'm going to respond the way my Savior would respond. Listen, Hammock Street. It changed the world once before. And it will change the world again. But not if we're afraid. The writer said, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer. Some versions are the author and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer, the one that kicked this whole thing off, and the perfecter, the one that fulfilled the promise to Abraham that one day ultimately fulfilled the promise of the entire New Testament. But the writer wasn't done. 
As if his message wasn't kind of in your face enough, he takes it even further. Here's what he says. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now we have a sense, because we've talked about it, about what it meant to endure the cross. We, We tend to kind of gloss over that too. Remember, a cross to us is jewelry, a cross to us is a decoration on a building. We cross over the part that Jesus said he, he, or the writer said, Jesus scorned the cross's shame. Because remember, the crucifixion wasn't just about pain, it was also about shame. It's safe to assume that Jesus knew that. Jesus grew up in Judea. He'd certainly heard the moans and the cries of the pain and the shame of the victims on those crosses. He'd seen what happens to a body after it was hung up there and then left there for days and days to rot in the hot sun. He and everybody else in his community understood the horror, the complete terror associated with crucifixion, not only for the victim, but for the victim's families. He understood the pain and the shame. It was not new information to Jesus. He'd seen it, and he'd heard it, and he'd smelled it, And still, he walked right into it with no fear. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. And he said, follow me. And then he looks at us and goes, so what the heck are you worried about? What the heck are you so scared of? Talking heads? Mean tweets? People in school making fun of you? The writer continued, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we go, oh, thank goodness he stopped beating us up. I mean, just when we think this section is over, the writer actually continues on and says this. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Think about that guy. Think about Jesus. So that you do not grow weary and you will not lose heart. This, this is the goal. This is the reason for all of this. So that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. So that you won't conclude that it's not worth it and it's not working and I'm walking away. Now, I want to direct my next comments to two distinct groups. Don't raise your hands. You know who you are. If you're 45 or older, this part is for you. If you're 45 or older, by this part in your life, perhaps you've grown weary and lost heart. And that's happened to you maybe because you fixed your eyes on a political system. Or maybe you fixed your eyes on a political leader. Or maybe you fixed your eyes on the way things were, or the good old days. Or maybe you fixed your eyes on the state of the economy. Or maybe you fixed your eyes on your favorite internet source, your favorite blog, your favorite YouTuber. Maybe you fixed your eyes on your favorite theory out there, or your favorite pundit to listen to. And you're just, I'm tired, I'm just weary, I'm I'm worn out. Well, if that's you, and I say this with all due respect and gentleness I can muster, You need to cut that out. Right now, you're scaring the children. Seriously, the generations coming up behind us, they're going to take their cues from us. And here are the cues we're giving them. Oh, no. If we don't get the right person elected to office, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't have the same kind of religious freedom and experience that our parents had or our grandparents had, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies in place, everything's going to fall apart. It's going to be the end of the world. 
Listen, it's not true, guys. It's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, government matters. Yes, policies matter. But neither of those matter as much as the men and the women who understand that power and importance of faith. Neither of those matter as much as the men and the women who have confidence in the fact that God keeps his promises and that nothing, no thing, can thwart God's plans. We know this from the Old Testament. We know it from the New Testament. We know this because the most powerful person in Judea at that time was a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. We know it because he, that guy, Pontius Pilate, looked at Jesus and said, crucify him. That's power. He put a guy to death. But the only reason we know who Pilate is is because we know Jesus' story. Pilate, the big shot, the Roman politician who controlled the earthly lives of all the believers, the governor of Judea is relegated to a footnote in Jesus' story. You wouldn't know about him because, but for Jesus. We have nothing to fear. So all of you guys, myself included, over 45, cut it out. Now, we need to model for these folks in the generations coming up that God's in control, that God can be trusted. Now, by the way, go ahead. Get involved in the political system. Absolutely. Get involved in your culture. Get involved in your society. But, but never, ever, ever Fix your eyes there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All right? All right, I'm done picking on the old guys. Now it's for the young guys. Everyone under 45, especially if you're in your 20s and 30s. Please, young folks, do not grow weary and do not lose heart. Do not fix your eyes on social media. Do not fix your eyes on Washington, D.C. or Tallahassee, Florida. And whatever you do, don't fix your eyes on my generation, okay? Don't grow weary. And don't lose heart because once upon a time, a group of people your age embraced a resurrected Savior and embraced his teaching. And a group of people your age changed the world. And they did it through faith, and they did it through the behavior connected to their faith. And then... As if the writer hadn't spent all that time just convicting the heck out of us, he takes one final shot. And here's what he says in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here he's saying, seriously, seriously, none of you has even shed a drop of blood for Jesus. And yet, you're paralyzed by overwhelming fear. What's wrong with you people? Come on. Get with the program. You've been invited to follow the God of the universe, the God who keeps his promises. That's, that's it, man. You have all the evidence you need. You just saw that there were a litany of people who followed God before he kept his promises. And now you're on the other side of it. Not only should you be fearless, but you have every reason in the world to be fearless. You have every reason in the world to be confident. You have every reason in the world to be generous. And you have every reason in the world to live your life in such a way that the people who never considered Jesus will consider Jesus because they were absolutely blown away by watching you live your life. 
Imagine if we were a generation of Christians about whom it could be said, the world is just not worthy of them. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that? I would. And you know something? It doesn't matter who the president is. And it doesn't matter what happens in any given election cycle. And it doesn't matter if we're ever able to recapture the good old days. And it doesn't matter what happens to the economy. Those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But we have an opportunity to run the race that is set before us. And it begins when we stop being so ridiculously afraid. And it happens when we begin to live with confidence. Not arrogance. Confidence. The confidence of knowing that God is for us. And God is for every person we've ever met. For God so loved the world. Imagine a generation of, imagine a generation of Christians that when people think Christian, they go, wow, I love those guys. Those people are the greatest They're the greatest, kindest, most honest, most hardworking, most fearless, confident people I've ever met. They say, I'm so glad the Christians are here in this business or this school or this grocery store. I love those guys. I might not believe everything they believe. They're kind of weird. I might not get everything they do on the weekends. I don't know what that's all about. But I'm telling you, there is something intriguing about those Christians. It's, it's almost as if they're too good for our world and not in a bad way. They're just so secure. They're so fearless. None of this stuff ever rattles them. An interesting thing about those Christians, I, I discovered some of them are Republicans. And some of them are Democrats. And some of them, I don't even know what they are. Some of them are wealthy. Some of them work from paycheck to, live from paycheck to paycheck. Some don't have much at all. Some of them don't have anything at all, but... It seemed like the only thing that mattered to them was their love of Jesus. See, why don't we decide? We get to decide this. Why don't we decide to be the generation of Christians for whom this world may not consider itself worthy? We have every reason in the world to try, and we have no excuse not to. Amen? I hope you'll come back next week for the conclusion of Tough as Nails. Let me pray for you. you. Heavenly Father, your word today was convicting and it was convincing. But now we're leaving this gathering and we're heading back out into the world. And there are marriages out there that are struggling. And there are classmates out there who couldn't care less what we believe. And there are relationships out there that we really have to work at just to keep going another day. And there are work situations out there where nobody wants to hear a word of this. There are health challenges. There are fears. This is a scary place, God. But Lord, we want to stand out in this world, not because we're the loudest, not because we're the angriest, but because we reflect your nature and your kindness and your compassion, and your fearlessness, and your confidence. So God, give us the wisdom to know what to do with all of this, and then give us the courage to do it. And Father, by your grace, and Father, in your mercy, maybe, just maybe, we'll be the generation that would impact our world, not because we agree politically, and not because we all have the same background, or because we all prioritize our values the same, 
but because we're all Christians. Give us the opportunity, God, to participate in this great work of yours. We pray these in the precious name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. And we ask this, and it's his name. Amen.